Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this morning we celebrate how great you are. This morning we lift up your name, we lift up your glory, knowing, Lord, that you are greater than any man. Knowing that you are greater than any king, greater than any president, greater than any nation, greater than any history, anything that we can point to, you always transcend it. And Lord, we are able to speak positively, glowingly of your greatness, of your glory, because in your greatness you came. You came. Father, you sent your son for us. You sent him that we might be delivered. You sent him that we might be your children. You sent him that our life, our destiny, our everything might be utterly transformed. And so this morning, as your people, we glorify your name. As your children, we, we bask in the glory of your name. We want to be a blessing to you today, Lord. We thank you for your son. We thank you for our new king, Jesus. And in him, we ask you to move now. Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. It's kind of, it's probably about the middle of the New Testament. You have the Gospels, Acts, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. We're in the second, or the third week, pardon me, of a series on Advent. And in Advent, we are doing two things. We are celebrating that Jesus has come, and we are longing for that day when he will come again. That moment in which he will return, and all of our languishing and all of our struggle will be finished. So, if you have your Bibles, would you stand with me as we prepare to read God's word together. We will be in Ephesians chapter 1, we'll read verses 3 through verse 14. God's word says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of of his glory. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. Ephesians opens up with praise. If you were to read the, the verses that we just read, verses 3 through 14 in the original Greek, you would read them all as being one sentence. 
It is one continuous flow of thought with no, simple, with no uh, sound sentence structure, with no sensible punctuation. It's just this run-on thought, kind of Paul just going from one thought to the next thought to the next thought, just kind of moving in this flow of praise. And so he opens up saying, blessed be our God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with all of the spiritual blessings. In fact, what Paul is exhibiting here are the classic symptoms of what they called in the early church as the apostolic disease. You read throughout the New Testament and you read the works of the apostles. Very often they're writing and they're writing. And it's like they they begin to write faster and they begin to write faster and they begin to write faster. When all of a sudden they just have to interject a word of praise, a word of worship. One theologian likened it to uh, the way the apostles write to a, a snowball rolling downhill. That it starts small and it rolls and it becomes fuller and fuller and fuller. And that the way that the apostles wrote is that it would, it would start with this, this doctrine. It would start with this, this simple principle, this, this simple concept of theology. And it would just snowball and the, their worship would just become fuller and fuller and fuller as it plummeted downhill. This morning, that's how we should see ourselves. We should long to have the heart of the apostles. We should long to have this joy to to wrap our minds around the goodness of God, to wrap our minds around the depths of God, to wrap our minds around the truth of the gospel should should fill us with praise that just can't stop, that just kind of eventually overflows into everything that we're doing where our sentences almost don't even make sense. When you read Ephesians 1, it's hard to read. It it was hard for me to read it in front of you, and and the reason for that is... This glorious, glorious disease that the apostles had. But when we come into Ephesians 1, we specifically beginning in verse 3, we have what Paul lays as the bedrock for the rest of the book. We have what Paul is, is going to build everything else out of, this, this truth, this reality that he's going to anchor everything else into. And, and frankly, it's one that we struggle with. It's, it's, it, these are words, this is, this is a passage, in fact, that has causes much discussion among Christians, much debate among Christians, sometimes contentious debate. But what I hope you see is that is not at all Paul's intention. That is not at all even on Paul's radar. If, if you would have told Paul that you could read Ephesians 1 and get into an argument with other Christians about it, he'd say, you're crazy. I wrote that to encourage you. I wrote that to lift your spirit. I wrote that so that your heart might be strengthened for the work at hand. But he says it plainly. He says plainly what we have such difficulty with when we get into verse 4. He says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, he says, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. That Paul says proudly, Paul says unashamedly, he's not uncomfortable saying it, Paul says, as the children of God, as the church of God, as the people of God, we have been chosen by God. That we have been chosen by him before the foundation of the earth. I think we could simplify what Paul is saying to say that we have all been transformed. We have all become the people of God. We have all become the children of God because of the decisive action of God. 
That we are his children because he wants us to be his children. That we are his children because he has chosen us to be his people. Just as Israel was chosen among all of the great nations as this tiny little nation in which God would pour out his blessings and through which God would be a blessing to the nations. God says, I'm continuing to raise up my people. I'm continuing to choose this tiny little nation that I'm going to call the church. He likens it to adoption. I've told you before that I think adoption is one of the most beautiful, if not the most beautiful, gospel-centered process in all of the secular world. That if there is anything that demonstrates the gospel on this planet, it is adoption. And so Paul says that in him, in love, we have been adopted as his children. The word sons can mean son or daughter. It is to literally mean child. And so he's wanting us to understand what it means that we've been chosen before the foundation of the earth. You see, adoption is never out of obligation, is it? Adoption is never out of you got to. Adoption is never because you must. Adoption is never because the orphan is particularly worth it, right? You don't go to an orphanage and then have this great Olympic Games among the orphans to see who, which orphan is the most worthy to be adopted. That doesn't happen. You, you don't have potential adoptive parents lined up at tables and you have uh, orphans come sit down with an interview and make their case or go to their house and do nice things for them to show all that they bring to the table so that the family now looks and says, oh, well, you sure would be valuable to have around. You should would, would be worthy. You should could help me out with some stuff around the house, so I'll adopt you to come into my family. No, brothers and sisters, adoption is gloriously different than that, isn't it? Adoption is gloriously different than that. Adoption is born out of desire and love, not out of the worthiness of the child. It is all about the mom and the dad looking at the fatherless child, looking at the orphan child and saying, I want you. I choose you. You bring nothing. I'm going to have to feed you. I'm going to have to pay for you. I'm going to have to send you to college. I'm going to have to discipline you. I'm going to have to stay up at night worried about you. I'm going to weep over you. I'm going to sob over you. I'm going to have hard days because of you. I'm going to stay up late trying to take care of you. I'm going to walk with you through the teething years. I'm going to walk with you through the dating years. I'm going to walk with you through your times of rebellion. I'm going to walk with you through your times of college. I'm going to walk you down the aisle. I'm obligating myself to you because I love you. And I choose to do so. You see, brothers and sisters, this is the picture. This is the picture. Why are we so afraid of this? Why are we not encouraged by this? That God, God, seated on the throne of heaven, looks down at us in the orphanage of our sin. And he says, I choose you. I choose you. I choose you to come and to know my particular love. I choose you to come into my house. I choose you to come and sit at my table. I choose you to know me as father. I choose you to come and walk with me and live in relationship with me. I choose you to know my love. Not because you bring anything to the table. Not because you do something for me. Not because you make me look good. Not because you help my kingdom out. As a matter of fact, i got to overcome all of that. 
I got to overcome all the stuff you bring to the table. No, I choose you because I desire you. I choose you because I want you. Perhaps the word that freaks us out the most in this whole passage is the word that we find in verse 5. It's, it's funny because Paul even prefaces it with in love, but he says, in love he predestined us. Verse 11, he repeats it. He says, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him. Now this is a word that we read our Bibles and we start shaking, right? We get nervous over this one. Like, what do you mean predestined? Like, my choices don't matter? Well, that's a tension in the Bible. And I don't know about you, but I'm content to, to leave attention what the Bible leaves attention, right? The mysteries of the gospel are incomprehensible to the mind of man, and that's okay. And so I, what, here's what I propose. Here's, here's what I do. This is my theology. On one hand, I must say that God chooses, that God adopts, that God predestines, and on the other hand, say that man must choose God, and man is responsible to choose God, and man has the obligation and the opportunity to respond to the gospel every time he hears it. And so in this tension, we live, but we hold both of these. We hold both of these. To let go of either of them is to let go of New Testament theology. To let go of either of them is to lose glorious pictures of the gospel, glorious aspects of the, the Bible. And so here's what I think he's saying. He's speaking to the reality of destiny. Hence, predestined, right? Predestiny. He's speaking to the reality of our destiny. And here's what he's saying. The, word, the prefix pre denotes planning always, doesn't it? Because it's pre, it means it happened before. It happened before the foundation of the earth, in fact, he tells us. It happened before. And so this is about pre-planning. I'm, I'm planning for something. And so here's what I think he's saying. That God, before the foundations of the earth, planned for our destiny, destiny to be something other than it should be. That God planned for our destiny to be something more, something greater than it should be. You understand what your birthright is, don't you? Your birthright is condemnation. You are born in sin as a sinner who likes to sin. And the scriptures are clear that the wages of our sin is death. That they are, they are owed to us condemnation. They separate us from God. They make us enemies to God. They make us infinite offenders against the infinite holiness of God. And so our birthright is the wrath of God and the judgment of God and the condemnation of God. That is our destiny. But before the foundation of the earth, pre-creation, pre-heaven, pre-earth, pre Birds in the air, fish in the sea, pre-man ruling with dominion, pre-Everest, pre-Atlantic, pre-sin, pre-Eden, pre-everything. God planned your destiny to be different than that. God planned for your destiny to be other than the destiny that you deserve, other than the destiny that you should have, other than your birthright. Now let me ask you something. Why would we not want to treasure a word like that? Why would we not want to treasure a word like that? Why would we not want to hold on to a word like that? Shouldn't a word like that send us into worship like a rocket plummeting through the atmosphere? That God looked into eternity future. 
and he saw us. Now, we're talking human, through human perspective, right? We know God transcends time. He's already in eternity future. But, but God looks into eternity future. He says, I see you. I see you in your sin. I see you with your birthright. I see you in your misery. I see you in your sorrow. I see you in your brokenness. And I choose you to be my son. I choose you to be my daughter. I choose you to be in my family. I choose you to sit at my table. I choose you to be marked by my name. I choose you to be filled with my spirit. I choose you to have my word on your heart. I choose you to rest with me in glory forever. I choose you to reign with me over the cosmos, over the new earth. I choose you. Brothers and sisters, should we not treasure such a word as this one? Should we not treasure such a word as this one? God already knew what you were going to be. God already knew that you had a wicked heart with a wicked mind and a wicked life. God already knew that you would think the wrong things, desire the wrong things, and do the wrong things. God knew you on your worst day. He already saw it before the foundation of the earth. And yet he saw through all of that, looked at you in the eye and said, will you be my son? Will you be my son? You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. But you are. Peppered throughout our passage is this picture of, of pointing to Jesus, right? He opens up, matter of fact, the passage is very Trinitarian, I wish we had more time to get into it, but he opens up, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Fifteen times he's going to go on to say this, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In verse 5, in love he predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ. So at the center of all of this adoption talk. At the center of this electing love of God, at the center of all of this is this picture of Jesus. It's, it's, it's spread throughout Ephesians, particularly in our passage. And here's what it's saying. The Father planned to redeem you. The Father planned to adopt you. The Father planned for you to be in his family through the work of his Son. In other words, the father planned on you becoming his son through the work of his son. Now think about this. Think about how all of these parts start fitting together. As we celebrate Advent. As we celebrate that Christ has come and he is coming once again. Think about how all of these plans fit together of God. Do you realize what it's saying here? That if God planned your salvation before the foundation of the earth. If God planned that your destiny would be other than it should be before the foundation of the earth. If God planned that he would choose us in him before the foundation of the earth. Guess what that means? Jesus was always coming. Jesus was always coming. Jesus' advent is not a nervous reaction or an overreaction by a caught off guard God. Jesus was plan A for God. See, very often people seem to read, they'll read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. God built it perfect. God built it, you know, thing, every, declared everything is good. There is no sin. 
But then it's like we get to Genesis chapter 3, we really don't know what to make of it, right? We don't, we don't, really, we don't really know what to do with, with Genesis chapter 3 when, when sin comes in and, and evil comes in. As a matter of fact, we look around our world today and we don't know what to do with the sin that we see. We look around the world today and we don't know what to do with the brokenness. And so our tendency can be to read Genesis chapter 3 and think, God, how did you not see that coming? God, God, how could you be caught off guard by this sin? God, how could you build a world and allow that to happen? But Paul is telling us none of this was beyond the plans of God. None of this caught God off, of, off guard. None of this was contrary to his will. None of this was contrary to what he, in his sovereignty, could stop and to control. To say that God sent Jesus as a reaction to our sin is blasphemy. God sent Jesus because he always planned to send Jesus. And God sent Jesus because he always planned to save you. Before the foundation of the earth. And for us, you know what that means? Jesus' advent proves to us, shows to us, assures us that God wants us as his children. Some of you just need to hear that this morning. Some of you just need to hear that. You're beaten down. You're ready to throw your hands up. Your spirit is low. You got sin. You got, you got guilt. You got conviction. Things in your life are not going well. You think, God, you even care about me. God, do you know anything about me? God, do you want me at all? Jesus' advent proves that he does. It proves it. Jesus' advent proves to us that God wants us as his children. The fact that he didn't just make the plan, but that he actually came proves that God wants us to be his people. God wants us to be his church. Can you think of anything more glorious than that? So the wrong question when we come to Ephesians chapter 1 is, how could God? How could God choose? How could God predestine? How could it be? The scriptures are clear that it happens. We must just embrace it. We must learn what it means. We must, we must understand that it's going to be a mystery to us, and that's okay. The wrong, that's the wrong question. The right question is why. Why? Why would God look at a sinner like me? Why would God look at an orphan like you? In the throes of your sin, in the throes of your rebellion, and say, I want her. I want him. I want them at my table. I want them in my house. I want them in my family. Why? Paul tells us. Verse 6 says, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Why did God save you? Why did Jesus come? Why did God make such a plan before the foundation of the earth to the praise of his glory? You see, Jesus' advent was not first and foremost about your salvation. 
You get that? Like that flies into the face of narcissistic Christianity. That flies in the face of he was on the cross only thinking about me. The Bible does not say that. No, in the Garden of Gethsemane, what does Jesus pray? Jesus does not pray, God, if it is, for the be- if it is what's best for sinners, send me to the cross. Jesus does not pray, God, if it is what will redeem Cody Hell in 2001, send me to the cross. No. Jesus says, if it's your will, Father. If it's what will bring you the most glory, Father. If it's what will honor you, Father, I want to go to the cross. Send me to the cross, Father, if it is your will, if it is to your glory. See, the, the, Jesus' advent, first and foremost, was to the praise of God's glory. It was so that God might be exalted above everything else in the cosmos. It was so that even more clearly than before, the world would know of his goodness, and the world would know of his greatness, and the world would know of his splendor. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there because verse 6 doesn't just say to the praise of his glory. Verse 6 says to the praise of his glorious grace. You can translate that actually to say to the praise of his glory through grace, through his grace. In other words, it is to God's glory to shower, to lavish, our text says, his grace upon you. It is to God's glory to lavish his grace upon you. It is to God's glory. It brings God glory when you are adopted by him. It brings God glory when you repent, when you are made whole, when you are adopted, when you now have family, when you are now redeemed, when you have been rescued. That brings God glory. You know, there, for, there was a period in, in my life not long ago that it was a crisis of faith for me. Why would God create the world knowing the sin that would come? There's going to be sin, and there's going to be brokenness. There's going to be, there's going to be the, the Holocaust is going to come. There's going to be racism run rampant. There's going to be xenophobia run rampant. There's going to be people that look at other people and say, I hate you because of the color of your skin. There's going to be little boys and little girls without moms and dads. There's going to be people I love that die with cancer. One of my students died of, one of my former students died of cancer just last week. So it's been a crisis of faith for me as to why God would you, knowing what would come of the world, knowing that you can stop it, knowing that you are sovereign over all things, why is it that you would allow this world to be filled with so much brokenness, filled with frankly so much evil? And the truth is, is my mind can't understand it and I, I haven't come to some great resolution of it. But I think in Ephesians 1, we at least get part of the answer. We, we, we at least get, get, get a hint of the answer. And it is this. That because of the fallenness of the world, because of the brokenness of the world, because of our own brokenness, we are enabled to know the grace of God and the glory of God and the forgiveness of God and the redemption of God and the rescue of God like no creature in perfection could ever know. That you could not know peace if you really didn't know sorrow. That you couldn't know the joy and the pleasure of forgiveness if you didn't know the weight and conviction of sin. 
that you couldn't know what it means to be adopted if you've never been fatherless. That the very greatest things that we point to in our salvation, the things that we testify about the most, are the very things that would have been impossible in a world of perfection. That in our adoption, because of the world's fallenness, because of the world's brokenness, in fact, because of our own fallenness, we are able to receive a, a distinct dignity that no other part of creation can behold. No angel can claim that they have been redeemed. No heavenly creature can claim that they've been adopted. Only we get to do that. Only we have that relationship with the Father. He has set us apart that way. It speaks to the goodness of God when you really realize that that which is most to his glory is at the same time what is best for us. Doesn't it? What is, what is most to God's glory? It is most to God's glory to send his son to die for sinners. What is the best thing for us? That God would send his son to die for sinners that we might believe in him and be saved. What is most for God's glory is at the same thing, time what's best for him. Jesus' advent proves the goodness of God. So when you find yourself like me, in a crisis of faith, in a moment when you can't make sense out of the evil that's around you, in a moment when you can't make sense out of the brokenness around you, and you wonder, is God really good? Ask yourself a second question. Did Jesus come? Did Jesus come? Does God really love me? Did Jesus come? Does God really care? Did Jesus come? That when we come to this moment when we don't know the goodness of God and we're, we're filled with brokenness and we're filled with cancer and we're filled with diagnosis that we don't want and we, we see things happening in our family that are beyond us and we see brokenness in our grandchildren and in our children. We see rebellion. We see so many sorrows that are beginning to pile up on our shoulders burying us and we question God's goodness. Let us as his children, let us as his people, remember back. Did Jesus come? Did Jesus come? Because Jesus come, came, we know God is good. We know God is good. We don't understand everything. We don't know how to process everything. But we know God is good. And brothers and sisters, that will get you through a tough day. That will get you through a crisis of faith. That will get you through a crisis in your family. That will get you through. Christ came and proved the goodness of God. And when he came, when he adopted you, when he chose you, when he brought you into his family, he gave you an entirely new identity. You see that in the text? You see that in the text? In verse 3, it says, I'm sorry, verse 4, it says that we have been made holy and blameless. That is, we were sinners made holy. In verse 5, it says that he predestined us for adoption as sons. We are the fatherless, now made a son. In verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. We are the debtor now forgiven. That God has given us a new identity to go with our adoption. And it didn't come cheap. It didn't come cheap. Your adoption didn't come cheap. You got that? 
The transformation of your identity didn't come cheap. God couldn't just bring like a truckload of gold up and say, hey, I'll take that one. Your debt was too high. God couldn't take billions and billions and billions of dollars and say, hey, I'll take that one. In heaven, that's just paper. No. It says the forgiveness of our trespasses were according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. That we have redemption through the blood. That what God did, he didn't go and look for gold. He has that for pavement. He didn't go and look for American currency. That's just paper. No. He reached into the storehouses of his grace. He reached down into the infinite storehouses of his grace. And he didn't see gold. And he didn't see money. He sent his son to pay for your debt. That the only one that could purchase you was the blood of Christ who came. You didn't come cheap to our father. And when he saved you, when he gave you a new identity, he didn't just give you a last name. That's not what we're talking about here. That's the, that's the best we can do in earth, man. It is beautiful when it happens, right? It's beautiful when you go from being this person who is identified with a checkered past or this person identified with a, an abandoned family, or this person, whatever that looks like, to a, 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 having the last name, bearing the name of the family that wants you, bearing the name of the family that desires you. But God does more than that. God doesn't just give you a last name. He gives you a fundamentally new nature. New nature. He makes you holy and blameless, verse 4 says. You were a sinner caught in the act. And he makes you holy and blameless before him. He makes you somebody entirely new. Robin Snyder was telling me about a story of one of the adoptions that she worked as a social worker. She said that that it had been a tough adoption. They went through just a lot of different things, and, and, and those types of situations are typically tough. And they finally gotten through, and the, the judge had signed the adoption order. And so Robin goes, and she sits down across from this, this boy who has lived fatherless and is without anything. And she says, you have a dad now. You, you can take their last name to be your own last name. And she said in a moment that she will never forget, the boy looked back at her and said, I finally have a father. I finally have a father. Do you understand that's what we're talking about? That's the picture of us. We had no identity. We had no family. We had no birthright to speak of. But Christ came. Because the Father looked down at us and said, I want him. And now we have a Father. We have a new table to sit at. We have a new destiny to speak of. We have a new hope to anchor into. We have been made new. And there's two ways that we should think about our identity. One is that it is totally secure. Totally secure, right? You are holy and blameless. You've been made holy and blameless before the Lord. That you are not any longer a sinner before him. Now the accuser is going to come to you and tell you otherwise. The accuser is going to come to you and he's going to say, hey, you remember what you did last week? Man, God wouldn't like a worm like you. 
You're worthless. The accuser's going to beat you down and beat you down and beat you down until you feel utterly defeated. Brothers and sisters, Paul calls the Corinthians saints. If you know anything about Corinth, you know they weren't saints, all right? We get to stand and we get to say, no, I am holy. I am blameless before the throne of God. I am men made right as his son. We get to talk back to the devil, as A.W. Tozer says. Some of you this morning are in defeat. You're filled with the guilt of last week's sin and last year's sin. You're filled with with the being beat down and being overcome by the struggle, the, the daily sorrows that you meet. And the accuser is causing you to live your life completely defeated. This morning, talk back to the devil. Talk back to him. You are holy. You are blameless. Your salvation is totally secure in Christ. The other side, though, that we should think of with our new identity is that it's still being revealed in us. So it's totally secured before the throne of God, and it is something we are still in pursuit of, still uncovering as the children of God as we live on this side of the earth. And so Paul says that we should put to death that which is in the flesh. We should stop looking at those things that are on the earth and place our eyes on the heavens, place our eyes on the glories of God. In other words, we should go after Christ. We should go after our new identity. We should feast on his word, delight in his word, so that we can become more fully who God intends for us to be. The world sells us cheap thrills and tells us that we can find satisfaction and tells us that we can find hope there and tells us that we can, if we just, we just make a little bit more money, if we can just buy a few more things, if we can just go on a little bit nicer vacation, if we can just have our family kind of a, a certain level, then things will just get better and things will just get easier. And yet what all of you know is that every time you get to that level, there's another level to get to. And you get to that level and there's another level to get to. And it's miserable. You cannot be fully satisfied in this life until you've not buying the things of the world but have unveiled the image of God clearly in you. The way that you're going to thrive, the way that you're going to find peace in your soul is uncovering Christ's image in you. And this is what the Spirit has come to do. This is what the Spirit has come to do. This is what he says, right? He says, in him you also, when you heard of the truth and the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. See, with your new identity comes a new inheritance. An inheritance that's given to us as a foretaste by the Holy Spirit. Think about that moment when you were saved. Think think, think about that moment that that you repented of your sin and you're broken over your sin. You have no explanation over your sin. You just throw yourself on the cross and say, Jesus, would you deliver me? Jesus, would you make me well? Jesus, would you make me whole? And do you remember that moment when the Spirit fills you for the first time? That moment in which you have peace in your soul and you don't know why. That moment in which you, you literally can just feel like yourself being completely wiped clean, being made holy and blameless before God. 
That moment in which you have utter joy, joy that is just unlike anything that you ever knew. That, that moment that you, you sense freedom in a way that you had never known freedom before. Here's what Paul is saying. That's just a foretaste, brothers and sisters. That's just a sample. That's just a fraction. That, that, that's just, a, just an edge of what is to come. It's an edge of what you are to know. That the Spirit is the guarantee that Christ has come and is coming again. That the Spirit is the guarantee of the inheritance that Christ has already secured you as a child of God. So you're going to know all of those things that we just talked about perpetually, forever, in immortality. Forever you will know joy that is unspeakable. Forever you will know peace that is beyond understanding. Forever you will know what it is like to have the sovereign hand of God wipe the tears from your face. Forever you will know what it's like to have perfect, perpetual health. Forever you will know what it's like to reign with him in dominion over all of the universe. But greater than any of those things an inheritance, what is the Spirit to us? He is the very presence of God living in us, right? Jesus told us when he left, he said, I'm leaving you, but lo, I am behold you always, even to the ends of the earth, even to the ends of the age. And how does he do that? The indwelling of the Spirit. But brothers and sisters, that's just a foretaste too. The greatest part of your inheritance is that you will one day sit physically at the table of Christ. One day, you will physically be at the feet of Jesus. One day, you will physically be in the presence of Jesus. You will reign with him forever. And so as you know the Spirit this morning, Christ came in his first advent so that the Spirit might come. And the Spirit has come now pointing us, leaving us longing for the second advent. This morning, let your heart long, brothers and sisters. Long for Jesus. Long to know the fullness of your inheritance. Let your imagination run wild with what that's going to be like. Let your heart race with what that's going to be like. Long for Jesus and worship him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful even for those parts that are difficult for us to wrap our minds around. We're, we're thankful for, for those things that are mysterious to us and beyond us. And we ask you, Lord, to take it, to illuminate our minds to it so that we see it clearly. To, to fill us with passion, to fill us with, with worship, to fill us with awe. Lord, let us have the apostolic disease so that we know what it's like to just interject worship.